Welcome to Constitutionally Speaking, a podcast about the United States Constitution, early American history and political philosophy. My name is Jay Cost, and with me is my co-host, Luke Thompson. And we are continuing our look at the historical Congress. Now, looking at Congress through the lens of history is going to take us in many respects and has taken us in many respects through American political history, because, of course, Congress is America's preeminent political institution. So it's hard to separate the one from the other. But what we've been trying to do in this series um, of historical you know, investigations of Congress is, is really to see how Congress itself changes and is changed by the political circumstance. So for instance, a couple episodes ago, we talked about the patronage system and how that ended up increasing the power in the Senate, things like that. Last week's episode, we left off talking about Woodrow Wilson and Wilson's vision of presidential governance coming to bear really from 1913 through 1917, more or less. Basically, Wilson's first term. Second term is dominated by the considerations regarding the war. And Wilson, as we had mentioned, brings to the White House uh, an argument that the government lacks coherence. It's almost a kind of Hamiltonian argument. If you think of Hamilton as being a counterbalance to Madison. Madison had thought that policy should basically be formed from the ground up through a series of compromises and bargains. Hamilton, on the other hand, sort of saw a role for elite policymakers to govern and guide and manage factions. Wilson is more in the latter camp, although I don't want to sort of call him a neo-Hamiltonian because he's got his own argument. His argument is that when Madison was writing in 1787, the United States, there was really no national will in the United States because we were so politically, religiously, ethnically, you know, linguistically even diverse. Wilson's belief at the end of the 19th century is that America is now a nation, a people. And so what is needed is is the government to give voice and expression to this truly national opinion. And early in his academic career, Wilson calls for kind of the integration of the executive departments into Congress, something closer to what the British parliamentary system has the the but, only time Woodrow Wilson liked integration right <laughs> yeah um and then during his presidency though Wilson sees himself in the office of president as being the one to give voice to the national will which is very ironic considering Wilson ran twice for the presidency and neither time received a majority of the vote but nevertheless now What's interesting about Wilson, and we talked about this last week, is that he's not, in many respects, he's not a transformative president in the sense that politics, when he leaves office, politics ends up looking something like a version of the 1890s, where you see the rise of not just the return of republicanism, but a kind of stand pat republicanism in the administrations of Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge. You see a kind of return to the old 
economic program, but you also see both Harding and Coolidge not following through on this ideal of presidential governance. Coolidge especially, I think, is probably the last American president to really reject the Wilsonian vision of the presidency. Then we get the Great Depression, and we get swept into office Franklin Roosevelt, who brings into the office a Wilsonian view of, of, uh, of the American presidency. And Roosevelt has multiple advantages over Wilson. The first one he has is he has a very, very large public majority, right? Ro Roosevelt basically sweeps uh, the Electoral College, overwhelms Harding in his quest for reelection, which was probably, which was certainly doomed from the start. So Roosevelt, unlike- Hoover, Hoover, not Harding. Hoover, thank you, yeah. yeah, yeah. Roosevelt, unlike um, Wilson, can actually claim in a way to speak for the people that Wilson in 1913, having won just 43% of the vote, could not do. So there's that. Another advantage that Roosevelt has is to be perfectly frank, he's a lot smarter about politics than Wilson, who uh, Wilson had a hyper moralistic view of himself. And Roosevelt is more flexible, he's more pragmatic. Um, and so he has that going for him as well. And what you see in the first New Deal Congress is you really see something like a return to the kind of vision. I don't even want to ascribe it to Hamilton because it's like Hamiltonian executive dominance on steroids in the first New Deal Congress. This is where the phrase, the 100 days comes from. And it comes from the fact that Roosevelt in from you know March through June of 1933 passes an enormous number of programs through the Congress. And what's really amazing about many the sweeping reforms, um, the the agri and you think of oh well when you think of you know the New Deal you tend to think of the alphabet administrations and and just the the number of things which is in itself you know I don't want to underestimate the substantial nature of that, but I would really point to the fact that uh, the Congress passes the Agricultural Adjustment Act and the National Industrial Recovery Act, both of which have create essentially blank checks for the administration to remake the two major sectors of the American economy, to remake industry and to remake farming. And the National Industrial Recovery Act passes on a voice vote in the United States Senate. There's not even a roll call for it. And it's basically just here, Mr. President, you figure this out. And so what's going on here? Why would Congress cede so much of its political power? Well, you know, we've heard during the COVID period here, we've sort of heard a phrase thrown around, the moral equivalent of war, right? Um, and, or meow, if you will. Um, and, and I, and it, it's used as, 
it's used as a kind of a slogan that frankly I don't think a lot of people really appreciate just how much that was the view in 1933 and I, I also don't think people realize how bad the Great Depression was. Um, I mean, the Great Depression starts as a really bad economic downturn. And then it levels off for a little bit. And then it just gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And it seems like there's no end in sight. And it is an extraordinary, the United States economy in one fashion or another was in decline from basically November of 1929 or October of 1929 until the spring of 1933. And it took, I wanna say it took a basically a decade, maybe not, I don't remember the exact data, that, that it took years for the economy to just get back to where it was before the depression happened. And it really didn't fully recover until World War II. And, and so I think it's important to appreciate the level of crisis, and also the extent to which, you know, we in the United States of America, we had an economic crisis in 2020. And, but we didn't have, I mean, we had the George Floyd protests and things like that in, um, in the major American cities. But we did not have anything like what they had in the Great Depression with, you know, so-called Hoovervilles or shanty towns. Um, you know, the Reaganite 20%, conser- 20% unemployment rate. I mean, 20, yeah. yeah. The Reaganite conservatism of California in the 50s was in many respects a consequence of this mass migration of Midwestern farmers leaving the Midwest because they were just busted and had nowhere to go. We had um in, I don't remember the year, I want to say it was 1928, World War I veterans basically marched on the Capitol to demand early payment of their bonuses. And President Hoover called out the military to disperse them. I mean, can you well, imagine that? To, to, be, mili- to be fair to Hoover, um, Hoover sort of, sort of does and sort of doesn't. Um, the, well, so suffice to say, yes, as a practical matter, the army is called out to, um, uh, to repress the bonus army, but um, MacArthur and Patton call some audibles on that. And uh, they, 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 they take some matters into their own hands and ignore, uh, ignore advice to act with restraint. But anyway. Well, the point, the, the, the broader point is that we see not just, this is not just an economic collapse, but this is an economic collapse that is so long and so deep that society in many respects itself is beginning to unravel. And, and you, so you'd had, you'd had a crisis in 1920 to the middle of 1921 that had been acute, a massive rapid deflationary um, economic crisis beginning in early 1920. And by the middle of 1921, it was over. Joblessness you know, peaks around 11%. 10% to 15, depending on which estimate you're looking at, but it's cut in half again very quickly. And so yeah. it, it looks like a V-shaped recovery. And that just doesn't happen with the Great It doesn't depression. happen. It doesn't happen. And so Roosevelt, in, I mean, in the country, in its desperation, I mean, just, just sort of like to put this in perspective, you know, I mean, the Democratic Party had been tagged rightfully as the party of secession 
and the party of segregation and the party of, you know, Cleveland's recession. And, the, you know, and we had mentioned, you know, like decent people, decent Americans in the North, at least, didn't vote for Democrats. Like, that's just not what happened, right? The country in its desperation turns to the Democratic Party on a level that is really, like the swing is really difficult to fathom. Um, in the, the 72nd Congress, the Democrats had gained a very narrow majority of 220 to 206 over the Republicans. In the, in the next Congress, in the 73rd Congress, the majority is 331 Democrat to 117 Republican which is just beyond comprehension today. That level of swing is just beyond comprehension. And so Roosevelt is able to, he has, to say that he has coattails is an understatement. And so he has this massive influx of New Deal Roosevelt loyalists coming into Congress and basically everything that Roosevelt wants, he gets. With very little debate, very little adjustment to the president's additional requests. And this is a period where the government and Roosevelt is going to, he's very straightforward about this. We're going to engage in bold experimentation. And the country, after four years of just desperation, basically says, okay, let's give it a try. Now, you would think that, you know, this would be the start of a new style of presidential governance. And if you look to the next Congress, you know, the Democrats in 1934, you think, oh, well, you know, in 1934, the Democrats are going to, you know, the Republicans are going to bounce back. No, they didn't bounce back. The Republican position actually decayed a little bit. Um, and you think, okay, well, 1930, 1936, okay, the country's going to ease off the gas a little bit. No, they don't ease off the gas. 1936, the Democrats gained seats again. And by the end of the um, the second, the 75th Congress, there's less than 100 Republicans in the House of Representatives. Now, I remember people in 2009 talking about the Republicans are going to be a regional party. And they had like 190 seats in, in 2009. The Republicans are reduced to 89 seats. And so and you see, and we'll get into the second New Deal. The second New Deal is a little different than the first New Deal. But again, you, you see the president, President Roosevelt, dominating domestic affairs in a way that no other American president really has since then. And the only one who compares in subsequent eras is Lyndon Johnson in the uh, Great Society Congress, where the president speaks and Congress acts. That's right. And it doesn't, and it doesn't last, right? I mean, even though Roosevelt comes in with this tremendous power and, 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 and so recenters the, the center of gravity and presidential power around presidential power and presidential governance to the extent that they amend the constitution while he's president to move the inauguration up from March to January. Right. I mean, if you want to see a signal that says, Hey, by the way, the president is the center of government, they move the president from showing up, you know, three and a half months after Congress shows up to a week and a half after Congress shows up and gets sworn in. Right. I mean, that's, that's a big difference, you know, um, despite all of this, um, 
you know, Roosevelt's dominance of the American political system does not last into the Second New Deal, and Congress reasserts itself. Um, I mean, there are sort of there are a couple of of portions of this that, or a couple of aspects of this that 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 we could. I mean, you could do an entire detailed, lengthy podcast on the the, the interbranch relations of of the New Deal period. But um, I'll go ahead and kind of um, I'll go ahead and give a quick summary of of where Congress reasserts itself, um, and I'll, I'll move as fast as I can. So um, Roosevelt comes in. I'm glad, Jay, you mentioned the Bonus Army, because the Bonus Army factors in the imaginations of Hoover and Roosevelt in very different ways. Um, Hoover sees it as a species of communism um, and worries that it, it will, it will you know, metastasize into Bolshevism, looking at the, you know, the, the, the Russian Revolution and the central role that soldiers and sailors um, played in setting up the Petrograd Soviet and, and whatnot. Um, by contrast, Roosevelt looks at it and he sees in it a species of fascism. Um, he sees the militarism, the, the nationalism, uh, the sort of charismatic leadership of the Bonus Army, etc. And so in both cases, their view is we have to do something to resolve the labor problem because organized labor is this kind of beast that is ready to be deployed either in the service of communism in the view of Hoover or in the service of fascism in the view of um, in the view of Roosevelt, the National Industrial Recovery Act is an attempt to do that. But um, as Jay mentioned, Naira is essentially a standardless enabling act, and it winds up getting struck down by the Supreme Court in um, a couple of a series of, of not what are now known as the non-delegation cases: the um, the sick chicken case, which is the Schechter poultry case, and the hot oil case. Um, both of these are uh, cases in which the uh, the Supreme Court strikes down portions of the uh, the the act on the grounds that it it set no effectuatable standards to um, operate the uh, to 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 limit the remit of government power. Um, there's actually a third, ironically, Curtis Wright um, uh, is is the third of the non delegation cases dealing with the the a, a war in Bolivia that that often gets mischaracterized as a plenary grant of, of presidential power, but should be read in the context of those other two. Um, without digressing, what happens is Roosevelt's very concerned that the Supreme Court has stripped from him the means he needs to keep either fascistic or, or Soviet-style revolution at bay in the United States. And so he proposes overriding um, the the Supreme Court's will, uh, calling them sort of revanchists and conservatives, even though on the merits, they're correct about this, the drafting structure of, of Naira. Um, and, and so he comes up with this court packing plan, which says, I'm, you know, we're going to have a mandatory age at which people, you know, have to be replaced with new judges. And oh, by the way, I get to pick a whole bunch of them. He proposes to swamp the majority of Republican justices that have been there for a long time. And what the court does is in order to avoid being um, to being overridden, which which uh, you know Roosevelt will need a compliant Congress to do, and the the Congress right now is is I don't want to say a cat's paw of of labor, but is certainly willing to do whatever labor says. The court flips on some interstate commerce leg uh, uh, cases, grants the president more or less, I mean, not quite untrammeled regulatory authority that kind of vitiates notions of federalism. In response, 
organized labor as well as sort of disorganized labor um, is satisfied with uh, the, the political pressure to pack the court kind of drops out and Congress declines um, declines to take up Roosevelt's proposal to pack the court because they, they, they see genuinely that, okay, if he's going to steamroll the Supreme Court, he might steamroll us next. So while we could help Roosevelt steamroll the court, we might be setting ourselves up to be steamrolled next. The court folds, surrenders um, in the Wickert and then later the Darby decisions and, you know, essentially walks away from the uh, from the non-delegation doctrine it had been propounding in both before and then in contradistinction to the National Industrial Recovery Act and what's now called the switch in time to save the nine, right? Because after the old aphorism that a stitch in time saves nine stitches later, do today, don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. You know, wags during the period say the switch in time from opposing Naira on non-delegation grounds to essentially allowing the regulatory regime of the Roosevelt administration to proceed saves the nine members of the Supreme Court from being packed, right? As soon as social movement force, in this case, the force of labor, evaporates because they trust and they have deep political trust in the Roosevelt administration to regulate in their interest as insofar as they understand it, question whether or not they understood it correctly or Roosevelt followed through in many ways he turns around and, you know, knifes them. But um, all in all, the, uh, the, the system works for, um, the system works for the Supreme Court and for Congress. Congress walks away from court packing, reasserts itself, and by the time we get to the second New Deal, right, Roosevelt has already put the back seat. So all of these New Deal programs that we think of, the alphabet soup, as, as indistinguishable from Roosevelt, the positive program of the New Deal as opposed to, to Naira, all that stuff just comes out of Congress. It's generated in Congress. It's generated often in the committee system, and it's propounded by Congress. And Roosevelt finds himself signing an agenda set by the Democratic Congress rather than dictating an agenda to Congress. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's it's worth, I think there's a broad, the broad narrative arc um, is really, there, there's a separation between the first New Deal and the second New Deal. The, the first New Deal is 1933-34. So you get some of the emergency relief plans. I think you get the TVA, uh, but the, the hallmarks of them are the Agricultural Adjustment Act and the and the National Industrial Recovery Act, um, and the the National Industrial Recovery Act ends up just being a disaster. And Roosevelt was probably fortunate that the Supreme Court killed it, and took it off his hands because it oh, wasn't he, working. He was when he, when he yeah. was asked running for reelection um, in the wake of his reelection, his first reelection, he says. You know, our opponents should have run on administration. We were a complete failure of administration. I mean, neither yeah. was a debacle, right? It was like, a it debacle, was a total, yeah. Yeah. I remember yeah. reading an early Brookings report about the failure of Naira, and it, it, they analogized its failure to trying to squeeze blood from a turnip is what <laughs> they were trying to do. So, like, because the problem, and it was a problem with both the AAA and Naira was that the country's productivity had fallen into the toilet and but the, the the response of both of them was to essentially constrain its productive capacities in a way to inflate wages which was not the right way to go economically but i think 
there's a there's a broad lesson here in the set embedded within the 73rd, 74th, 75th Congresses, which is the capacity of the legislature, even of the same party as the president, to resist. And you see this in a couple of important ways. Um, a major tension within the New Deal coalition exists between the Northern progressives, who would have been old bull moosers at this point, who are tend to be more on the left wing on racial issues, and the Southern Democrats who are the backbone of the Democratic coalition. Now, Roosevelt was not the kind of guy who lost any sleep over race issues, to be perfectly blunt. He was not in any really way, shape, manner, or form, especially forward thinking on civil rights. He wasn't- This a is retro- why, by the way, you'll see historians all of a sudden talk about Eleanor Roosevelt when the subject right, of civil because rights El- comes up. Because she right. is, but right. he is that's, not. That's right. Yeah. So, and you can see this if you see like um, a Ken Burns documentary or something on PBS when in their efforts to paint Roosevelt as being farsighted, they do a quick switcheroo over to Eleanor. Now, there are- Within the New Deal coalition, there are visionaries on civil rights in the North. Okay. The New Deal also, now, another important point is the New Deal has the effect of bringing Black voters out of the Republican Party and into the Democratic Party because while Black voters, Blacks received less than whites in the New Deal, they were still getting something, which is the first time, frankly, since Reconstruction that anybody had ever in in Washington had ever done anything for them, to be perfectly honest. So there is that element. But you see, though, and I mentioned last time, there were two threads from the Wilsonian uh, administration, the Wilson administration that carry forward here. One of them is presidential governance. The other is the decentralized nature of congressional power, and particularly combined into the committee system, combined with the um, the seniority system. When Roosevelt takes takes control of the government, basically the people who are in charge of the House, especially, are going to be Southern Democrats. Southern Democrats are in a position to use their places on the committee system to reinforce segregation system. You can see this in all sorts of subtle little ways in the in the New Deal. For instance, if you ever dig deep into uh, minimum wage laws, minimum wage, and also social security, you'll see that there's all sorts of weird exemptions for farm workers. And it's like, well, where do those come from? Those come from the Southern gentry class and their representatives in the house uh, working through, making, making sure that the Social Security Act did, did not provide sharecroppers with any relief. And the Fair, Lander Sta- Fair Labor Standards Act, likewise, does not include sharecroppers in minimum wages to keep those farm workers dependent upon um, the landowners in the South. Other examples would be the Agricultural Adjustment Act in its first iteration actually gives money uh, to the landowners. And then it's just up to the landowners in the South to distribute the benefits around. And when Alger Hiss, who becomes famous later on as being you know, a communist and exposed by Nixon or whatever, Alger Hiss is working in the Department of Agriculture, um, complains about this, he gets fired. Uh, because the fact of the matter is, is that Roosevelt's got to keep all these Southern Democrats happy. And likewise, Roosevelt, 
is also not going to uh, make any moves on civil rights so long as he doesn't have to. And the reason why is because he needs the votes of these Southern Democrats. And there's this really interesting quote from Roosevelt uh, to the head of the NAACP, Walter White, because White as head of NAACP is pushing Roosevelt to push civil rights. And Roosevelt basically tells him, no, he says, I did not choose the tools with which I must, must work, but I've got to get legislation passed by Congress to save America. The Southerners, by reason of the seniority rule in Congress, are chairman or occupy strategic places on most of the South Senate and House committees. If I, if I come out, this is in the case of an anti-lynching bill, which Congress wouldn't even pass. Can you imagine that? Congress wouldn't pass an anti-lynching bill. Roosevelt wouldn't get behind it. If I come out for the anti-lynching bill now, they will block every bill I ask Congress to pass to keep America from collapsing. I just can't take that risk. Now think about that. The next time you see a, a syrupy, gooey Ken Burns documentary about the brilliance and moral clarity of Franklin Roosevelt, he can't take the risk of an anti-lynching bill because he has to quote, save America. How's that for your priorities? But though the point here is not to remind our listeners that uh, I doubt our listeners need much reminding, um, that the official narrative about the Democratic Party diverges in many respects from the true narrative up until shockingly recently. Um, but the point, though, is that even with Roosevelt bestriding the country like a behemoth, these Democrats in, the, in Congress are still in a position to uh, veto. And this is where things get really interesting. And one of the most, and, and one of the most important political moments of the 20th century. It's also one of the least talked about. It's one of the great, almost a kind of showdown at the OK Corral between the branches of the government is the 1938 midterm elections. Roosevelt had tried to get his court packing plan through, had been unsuccessful. Roosevelt is also meeting opposition from Southern Democrats with respect to the, rot, the, the government's protection of industrial and trade labor, which was a key part of the second New Deal. The first New Deal did not really offer any protections for industrial labor or trade labor for that matter. But with the, the collapse of the National Industrial Recovery Act, Roosevelt, as Luke alluded to, opens the door to Congress. Robert Wagner comes in with the so-called Wagner Act to basically create the modern labor union movement. Now, this is, has it, as everything in the South does at this point, there is a racial dimension to all of this because the last thing that Southern Democrats want are their black sharecroppers unionizing, right? They don't want a redistribution of economic power in the South that's facilitated by federal government intervention. The Southern Democrats had been happy to facilitate Frank uh, Woodrow Wilson's assault on Northern industry and Northern banking interests um, during the progressive Congresses in 1913, 14, 15, 16. But when it comes to unionization, particularly in the South, the Southern Democrats are gonna see that as an invasion of their, their, their way of doing things in the South. And so the Southern Democrats begin tapping the brakes. Now, some of this happens pretty early. 
Uh, Senator Byrd of Virginia, for instance, is an early opponent. But as we go through the first New Deal into the second New Deal, you see more and more Southern Democrats tapping the brakes. And then when Roosevelt's court packing plan gets voted down, and again, for similar reasons, right, Southern Democrats are happy with the way the court is operating right now because it has a very narrow interpretation of the 14th and 15th Amendments, right? They don't want any kind of court packing plan. So Roosevelt decides and sort of reckons, and, and the Roosevelt administration and his so-called Brains Trust had been thinking for a while a couple of things. The first one was that we need an ideological realignment in this country. So the Democratic Party has to become the party of the progressive movement. And we need to, so the conservative elements of our party, they need to go. They also reckoned though, and this is very ironic considering they believed that poor whites in the South were potential, like strongly progressive. They thought that the poor whites in the South would back them. And they believed that the Southern Democrats in charge had basically were oligarchs parading around as populists. And so what Roosevelt does, and this is extraordinary, what he does in 1938 is he throws the weight of the presidency behind a series of primary challenges, particularly against Walter George of Georgia, who's a senator, and also Miller Tidings of Maryland, who were two of the really like aggressive anti-New Deal Democrats. He also goes against John O'Connor of New York, who was the chair of the House Rules Committee, and he was a Tammany Hall guy. It's important to bear in mind that Roosevelt think he's not completely crazy for thinking that he can crack the segregationist uh, conservative democratic machine in the South because he had already kind of cracked. No, no, excuse me. He hadn't already kind of already. He had already basically by this point destroyed Tammany Hall and he had flipped Philadelphia out of the hands of the Republicans into the hands of Democrats. He'd done the same thing in Pittsburgh as well, both of which were Republican cities. 1936 swing hard for him. So he's thinking he's got the political power to start meddling in Southern politics. And he's overwhelmingly met with failure. Now, there are a couple of uh, progressive Democratic candidates like Claude Pepper, who was nicknamed Claude Red Pepper of Florida because he was basically a communist, um, <laughs> who, who and Albin Barkley in Kentucky, who were more progressive, who end up winning. But with the exception of O'Connor in New York, all of Roosevelt's efforts to purge the Democratic Party of the incumbent um, conservative Southerners is a failure. And so what does this mean? And it, it, well, it means that the in the ability of the president to act as a prime minister is demonstrated to be much less than what Wilson and Roosevelt had thought it could potentially be that Roosevelt and because I really want to emphasize this okay where is Roosevelt coming from here in 1938 he won 61% of the vote in the 1936 presidential election he won every state except Maine and Vermont. So he's thinking at this point, I'm in the process of remaking the United States of America's politics. And frankly, he has good reasons for thinking this. But the fact of the matter is, is that Congress in this subtle way, and, and it's easy, I think, like when you look at the people who end up winning, 
there's nothing freaking sympathetic about Walter George of Georgia or Miller Tidings of Maryland. Both, of, I mean, like to call these guys racist is like they're against an anti-lynching bill for God's sake, right? Well, I mean, that's it, it, it undersells it. I mean, they're just yeah. They're, it's yeah. It, 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 they they are they're basically to they're lawbreakers. They're actively facilitating uh, the a violation of the 14th amendment is basically what they're doing, right? They are, uh, they are in many, the unreconstructed South is who they are. That's who Walter George is. Okay. The unreconstructed South. Um, and yet, if you look at it, put aside the, the, the substance of the fight and consider the form of the fight, you see the president unable to wield sufficient power to remake his own congressional delegation. And so what we get then moving forward is that, yes, the president is the head of his political party in many respects and ways, like presidents moving forward from Roosevelt are leaders of the party in a way that, you know, Calvin Coolidge was not the leader of the Republican party, but the president also is forced to deal with the party in Congress as he receives it. That's a hugely important development. And it ends up defining American politics over the next, until frankly, uh, the 104th Congress of 1994, because you see this kind of divergence within the Democratic Party of this conservative, uh, conservative Democratic sort of faction southern democrats i wouldn't even say like conservative i think gives the wrong impression right because they're in many cases they're deeply hostile to capitalism uh certainly big business and and oftentimes small business too right they're they're reactionary right they're they're, yeah yeah i would say just call them the jim crow democrats well i would be careful with that because i would say that they do hate communists though i i they do hate communists and they are internationalists um I, I I will say I think that if you look at so they're conservative in in this sense I would say that um, really the so the blueprint for post war liberalism is Harry Truman's Fair Deal program um, from 1948 and it's interesting because the Democratic Party is still like if you go back and look at the Fair Deal and Truman's proposals from 1948 the Democratic Party's basic ideology is still more or less the fair deal, at least on a social welfare level. It really hasn't been updated very much. I mean, it's been updated to include upper middle class sort of, you know, white collar concerns um, like feminism and environmentalism and things like that. But on a, on a social welfare level, Harry Truman is still the fair deal is still a defining characteristic. Now for whatever re- the South has its own reasons for opposing the fair deal, but it opposes the fair deal. Um, And so in that sense, they end up aligning with Northern Republicans, even though the source of their opposition is different. So the South is going to, while the South is in favor of regulating what is still at this point, basically Northern industry and Northern finance, they are going to generally oppose the redistribution of wealth in the form of government transfer payments. And they're also going to be strongly opposed to organized labor, which is going to put them 
in an informal alliance with the Republicans. And this alliance really lasts more or less. In many respects, it's pretty durable. It, it, it lasts from, you can sort of see it as late as we're going to talk about ERTA, the Economic Recovery and Tax Act of Reagan in 1981. But like Reagan is able to get his sweeping tax agenda enacted in large measure because he's got the support of Southern Democrats. And so what's really interesting about this is that after Roosevelt obviously is president from 1933 to 1945, but the legislative phase of the New Deal ends in 1937, basically with the Fair Labor Standards Act. And so you have this, when you factor in the Roosevelt period, so that's eight years where there's very little legislative action, plus another two years with Kennedy, 61 and 62, and I guess most of 63. And then the final two years of Johnson's presidency, you see this, even though the Democrats, they have a trifecta in government during this time, but they're really not able to do much of anything because the Southern Democrats make up the difference between the, like the Southern Democrats are basically, even though they're a, they're a relatively small faction in the Congress, they are in a position to use their political power in the committee system as a choke point and barring those choke points to align with, um, with, uh, with Republicans. This is a big reason when, why when people uh, want to talk about John F. Kennedy and the new frontier, like why do they always end up talking about uh, the Peace Corps, which was a relatively insignificant program? The reality is, is that Kennedy couldn't get anything done in 61, 62, and for most of 63. I mean, he, I mean, could, Kennedy, he, he is he is far, I mean, he could not have, imagine if the Eisenhower Civil Rights Bill had gone down, Kennedy could not have recapitulated it and passed it. Right. Which is, which yeah. is crazy because a year later, you know, when he's dead, it sweeps through in the, in yeah. the aftermath Ex- of his murder. But yeah. Exactly. Like Kennedy couldn't even get, so, you know, one of the things that the Democrats had, you know, had decided after Truman, likewise, Truman isn't able to get anything done. I mean, like Truman wins re-election in his own right in 48. He didn't get any of the fair deal. None of it. None of it happens. And the Democrats um, have control of Congress in, uh, in, in, in the 48 election and 50 election. The Democrats take control of Congress. They have, the problem is, is that their majority is built on this backbone of Southern Democrats who are opposed to the fair deal. Kennedy, like, so like, and Kennedy tries to, you know, kind of peel back Truman's ambitions because Truman wanted a nationwide health insurance program like social security. So Kennedy gets behind what's known as Kerr Mills, which ends up becoming Medicaid. And the idea being, okay, well, we can't do nationwide healthcare. How about healthcare for poor people? No, we can't get that in, right? We can't get that in. In 1961, Kerr Mills, uh, dies. And so this is what's a really interesting development. And so you begin to see a, a really fascinating divergence between political reality and the American people's perception of politics. The political reality during around the, the sort of like, you know, from 38 through the meat of the post-war era is you see Congress really reasserting itself as an institution, much in the same way that it had in the 19th century, 
where the Congress is not at anybody's beck and call. But the public increasingly comes to see the president as being a kind of prime minister, which is how they still see him today. And the, 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 the truth is that the, even the president simply lacks the kind of resources necessary to force members of Congress to vote against their interests, however they perceive it to be. And that's sort of like to go back to that old Hamiltonian view of things. You know, one of the reasons Hamilton was a, was a fan of Walpole and, and, and he liked the power of the king to effectively bribe members of parliament he didn't think that it was corrupting Republican government. He thought the job of the king was basically to bribe members of parliament to do the thing that they should be doing anyway. But they're so small-minded and stupid that they need to be bribed. That's sort of, that was Hamilton's idea. Um, and, you know, you kind of see a little bit of that during the New Deal, where the New Deal basically, like, you know, creates a kind of federal machine in many, many respects. Um, but... It, there's So there's lots of carrots there that the president can kind of distribute with this New Deal patronage. And believe me, he does. I mean, they basically, I don't remember the name of the act. What's the act that keeps members of the bureaucracy from partic- participating in politics? The, the Hatch Act. Yeah, the Hatch Act. They enacted the Hatch Act basically because the Democrats got caught creating a federally funded political machine in Kentucky. Right. <laughs> so, you know, Roosevelt. And, and so even then, like they overshot their you know, there is sort of a Tammany on the Potomac aspect to the New Deal. Um, but Roosevelt in 38 demonstrates that he doesn't have, like he has carrots, but he doesn't really have the sticks that he thought that he had. And, and that's something the president really doesn't possess now. I mean, Roosevelt and, also has this belief that is not totally crazy when you think about where he is, but that he can kind of incorporate remnants of the old Republican Party from the Northeast and break the Republican Party and create functionally single party democracy through the Democratic Party. So, you know, he makes Henry Stimson his his, um, Secretary of War. He, you know, lavishes Fiorello LaGuardia with money. Now, those are both New York Republicans, and that's not a coincidence, right? But, um, But he... You know, he does not do, ironically, he does not do what, you know, a, what a, a Speaker Reed as in that position probably would have done, which would have been, you know, radically consolidate power in the, in the Democratic Party alone, right? I mean, he, he managed, he tries, in some ways, it's a real throwback, even as he ruthlessly and sort of amorally advances his own political interests, he does not restrict his you know, political program to the Democratic Party. He is using different parts of the broad political landscape to, if not do equal justice by all factions, and certainly that's not the ambition, but to try to flow the entirety of the political population through his administration up to right. including the, you know, opposition. And look, it pays dividends, right? Had he maybe, maybe had he not done that, he, he loses the 44 election, right? I mean, that, it, there's a very real possibility um, of, of that, right? So there's, there's, I think there are, um, it, there are ways in which it, it is not as obvious maybe as, as people think, but there's, um, or sorry, not the 1944, 40, 40 was Wendell Wilkie, right? Yes. 40, well, yeah, 40 was Wilkie. Yeah. So like, has he, had he not, you know, had he not done that, he might've lost to Wilkie in 1940, right? But he's able to 
allied some of the distinctions between the Republican Party nationally and the Democratic Party nationally. And Wilkie is an interventionist and all these other things such that he, you know, he survives the most serious test to his presidency in 1940. Um, but anyway, that's a digression. What the, we're, you know, this is not just about the presidency. This is about, you know, the Congress. And I think one of the things that we've t- talked about Roosevelt doing, and, and this is worth sort of drawing a line forward through the Great Society and up into to 1994, right, is, um, you know, Roosevelt takes a lot of that progressive area stuff that's sitting around and, and uses it, right? The, the stuff that's ready at hand and, and he catalyzes it. And so, you know, we talked in the last episode about mugwumps and reformism within the Republican Party, et cetera. And, you know, one of the great achievements of reform, even during the kind of uh, the, the, the post, you know, the post-Wilsonian era of Republican dominance is the Budget Act of 1921. Um, you know how we pointed out that um, you know Aldrich Aldrich cooks up a notion of a Federal Reserve. Wilson then takes that and and makes it law. It gets reformed, but you know the Republican Party, even the old Republicans, were willing to engage in reform that improved the stability of the monetary and fiscal system to serve the interests of of large industry. Right. Um, the the Budget Act of twenty one is part of that. And, and its goal is to create um, a, a more or less transparent federal budget by having the sort of information gathering, marshalling the information gathering power of the executive in the service of Congress setting its budget. And from, you know, 1921 until the Roosevelt administration, um, you know, and, and, you know, really 39, it more or less works. I mean, it works for almost 20 years where the Bureau of the Budget in the, in the Treasury Department provides a set of numbers that more or less conform with the, uh, you know, the, the science of politics, the new science of politics vision that progressives like, you know, Walter Lippmann would have, would have believed in, provides it to Congress. Congress amends it to serve their particular ends, but you have a legitimate collaborative model of governance between the executive and, and the president. And the Congress. Now, as you go into the New Deal, that budgeting process becomes less important in terms of its its political role, right? And, and, and budgeting, even in this in this nineteen year or eighteen year period of success, never has the kind of role that budgeting has in the UK Parliament, where you know the Conservative Party gets together and they put together their budget, and then the the Chancellor, the Exchequer, walks out of of Ten Downing Street holding a big red suitcase with the budget in it, and all the you know newspaper people take photos of him, right? It's it it, it doesn't ever have that kind of cultural power, but the um, the Bureau of the Budget is is tabulating executive branch information and transmitting it in a, in a fairly neutral way to Congress for Congress to make informed decisions about spending priorities. Starting in 1939, during the buildup of the peacetime buildup of the American military, Roosevelt transfers the Bureau of the Budget out of Treasury into the offices, uh, into the executive office of the president, which was created to support Roosevelt's administrative obligations. Um, once it's in OMB, it becomes more directly responsive to the political pressures of the White House and less of a less of sort of bureaucratic functionary the way the Federal Reserve is sort of viewed as a bureaucratic functionary. You know, who knows how long that'll last, but like it, it looks a lot less like the independent entity that it's set up to be and much more like a like an extension of the presidency. Now, 
the GAO, the Government Accounting Office, which has also created in that same law, is is retained as an independent entity, and so that that you know sort of stays in its own place. But um, the once inside OMB, what rapidly winds up happening is parts of the federal government, which are expanding rapidly, right? Those contact with the executive branch at the level of budgeting. And so it becomes the place where the, um, where the chief executive can impose his will on the bureaucracy. And, um, you know, FDR does this to very good effect. But because he has an, an allied and sympathetic Congress, uh, they're comfortable taking the budgetary estimates of the, uh, of the administration more or less at face value, right? And, and this continues um, really through the New Deal. Uh, you know, Eisenhower faces some pushback. There's some budgeting back and forth, but even Eisenhower, right, the, his, his budget is taken by Congress more or less at, at face value. Um, you know, th- these become the primary, the foundational documents around which policymaking gets done. By the time we get to the New Deal, or sorry, the Great Society, in the wake of, of Kennedy's assassination between the, the Jim Crow Democrats in the South and the you know, sort of Northern Progressive Democrats, um, arguably would have emerged in the back half of the Kennedy term and may have scuppered his reelection had he not been assassinated. But because of his assassination and his instant elevation to martyr status, especially among Democrats, especially among white ethnic blue collar Democrats, and really just across the board, you know, Lyndon Johnson is able to sort of squat on that, that moment or that those pressures for a while. And the budget numbers that come out of the Great Society OMB lead to this raft of vast liberal um, uh, policymaking and legislating, um, but they don't provide Congress with a heads up about one the realistic likelihood of these numbers being accurate, right? As opposed to expanding, and they don't really give them a good sense of what the long-term economic ramifications of these programs are going to be, right? That's not the that's not the Office of Management and Budget's job. Um, it's neither of its jobs, right? One job is to manage and make sure that the executive branch is doing what it's told to do. And the other is, of course, to provide the budget to Congress as, as a basis for, for spending and legislation. Um, what happens during the Great Society is because the federal government is spending so much money domestically and also spending so much money on the war in Vietnam, you get this massive inflation that starts in the late 1960s and is it just dogs the country through the 1970s. Um, and as, as inflation accelerates, I mean, it's, it's to, to look, even as we look around at what's going on right now, contrast that to the 1970s, it's, we're, we don't have a candle to the 1970s, right? Like the value of money sort of drops in half in a decade. Um, you don't have stable inflation. You don't have anything, you know, you don't have predictable prices. Um, but it's, it's the first moment where the Congress are sufficient for Congress to, um, to kind of do its job. Uh, now, you know, the Nixon, the, the, the fall of the Nixon administration and um, fights over regulatory clear, preclearance and OMB, um, even as that second, the, the, the fights over regulation in the Office of Management Budget elevate OMB in the consciousness of sort of Democratic members of Congress and senators, Nixon's fall 
again, sort of placates them and they don't really, they don't really think about um, interrogating OMB too terribly much uh, during, during his administration. But there's this seed of an idea that says, you know, we're, we're really going to need our own way of doing things. And so in the wake of, or really in, in the middle of the Nixon resignation, um, Congress passes a series of pieces of legislation in order to retain, regain control and assert control over budgeting and spending and money in general, right? Because they've seen their power of the purse progressively attenuated from Roosevelt through the Great Society to the present. Um, Nixon gets impeached over Watergate, but he also gets impeached over unilaterally deciding to bomb Cambodia, which massively accelerates domestic political uh, friction uh, that's splitting the Democratic Party because the Democratic base is divided on the question of Vietnam. Um, but also what Nixon starts to do is try to control inflation through unilateral restrictions on spending using a power called impoundment. Now, the impoundment power is, is very old. It dates back at least to the Jefferson administration. And, and what it said, more or less, is that the president may redirect congressional funds to subsequently, substantively identical ends, right? So let's just give an example. If Congress allocates, you know, $30 to buy pencils, and uh, they specify like a type and make of pencil, but in between the law passing and the purchasing happening, a new model of pencil comes out. Under the impoundment power, the president could redirect, could impound the money and redirect it to be spent towards buying, say, this new model of pencils or more pencils at a better deal, right? What, what Nixon does is he abuses the power. He's concerned about inflation, but Congress is passing massive spending bills because in their individual parochial interests, they think that by spending more money, they can actually stave off the political ramifications of, of, of inflation. Nixon vetoes these bills. He gets overridden and then he refuses to spend the money, arguing that he's impounding it, which obviously would sort of vitiate the congressional uh, veto override and is terrible constitutional violence. This is also when Nixon is starting to talk about the presidency as a co-equal branch and, and all this stuff that we've talked about a million times on the podcast. But um, as Nixon falls, because he's impounding con congressional spending priorities and essentially usurping Congress's control over spending, and he's unilaterally bombing Cambodia, and Watergate is becoming a national, you know, cultural and political scandal, Congress forces through the Congressional Budget Impoundment Control Act. That annihilates the president's impoundment power completely. Instead of attenuating it or controlling it or defining it or restricting it, they just, they, they, they legislate out in this framework statute that the president has an impoundment power. And they also create the Congressional Budget Office, which will serve an executive function, which is budgeting in the service of the congressional majority. And what that means is that from now on, Congress will no longer depend on or trust the executive branch to provide information to the Congress. And this is, this is a huge sort of, of, of revelation. Uh, uh, it's a huge revolution in the way the branches see one another away from this collaborative vision and into something that is much more contested, much more departmentalist, where Congress is generating its own autonomous, independent functions um, because they don't trust the information that they're getting from the, the White House. And they don't believe that if the White House lies, the White House will be punished politically by, um, by the public.
And so, you know, if you look at the, and by the time Bill Clinton's running for president, he's promising to use CBO numbers, not his own OMB numbers, because the executive branch has become popularly distrusted when it comes to providing information around things like, sorry, go ahead, Jay. Yeah, um, it's interesting. There is a real collapse in public confidence in the executive branch during the 1960s and early 1970s. You see this with the um, Gulf of Tonkin resolution as well, being replaced by the War Powers Act, limiting the ability of the president to engage in unilateral military, not unilateral, but you know, military exercises without checking in with Congress. Um, you likewise see it with the impoundment, uh, you know, the prohibition on impoundment. What's interesting about this as well um, it's really profound. The loss of trust that the American people had in their government be, through the, be, between the Vietnam War through Watergate is one of the most important, you know, damaging acts, uh, developments in 20th century American politics. And I think to Luke's point that it, this is a, this is not just a, a collapse in public trust, but this is a collapse in the legislature's ability to trust the executive branch. Because if you go back and look at the State of the Union address, and the State of the Union address, first of all, it's not an address originally. It was not a political campaign speech. We talked about this, that one of the jobs of the executive department in the original constitution was because the president oversees the administration of the government. The president is the one who is going to be collecting information about the government's finances, about things that need to be done, about places where money should be spent. And the function of the State of the Union address was to transmit that information to Congress. And if you look at the early States of the Union addresses, they are not written like political speeches the way they are now. Now, there was politics at work in them, but they were largely about we need to we need we need to do this we don't have enough money here we need to put money here we need to put money there and they were usually delivered early in so nowadays we do the state of the union in like the spring or whatever like may because it's just a campaign speech now but historically the state of the union address was was delivered in writing to Congress in the fall, as Congress would be sitting down for its new session, basically the president giving Congress literally information on the State of the Union. Here are the things you need to. Here are the things you need to work on, right? And the budgeting process was sort of like that in the sense that the executive branch was going to collect information and provide it to Congress so that Congress could make decisions about levels of taxation and spending, and also estimating the effects of these potential spending and taxing policies. But the Congressional Budget Office and, you know, indeed, even the Congressional Research Service really illustrates the extent to which faith in the executive branch to be an honest broker of information is just eviscerated between the so-called credibility gap of the Vietnam War, 67, 68, Nixon's illegal bombing campaign in Cambodia, the illegal activities the committee to reelect the president undertook with the president's knowledge after the fact and his encouragement in covering them up. You know, there was just this um, tremendous loss of faith 
in the 60s and 70s. I mean, I mean, I, you know, the public expression of this is the election of Jimmy Carter in 1976. That guy would never have been elected in any other point in American history, except he seemed like an honest guy, which was a breath of fresh air. Um, you know, it, it really speaks to the, and, and you know, not necessarily a bad thing, really. I think Congress asserting itself against an executive branch that because of, um, you know, the expansive regulatory state that we see in the wake of the great, uh, the New Deal, and the increase in federal, you know, federal social welfare p- policies, really overwhelming traditional network, social networks of social welfare provision and local government provision, which is on an efficiency level, not, not a bad thing, but on a, you know, really ends up giving the president a kind of influence over affairs that historically were not would not have been under his his influence so so we get this development where you know as i had been mentioning you know the president ends up you know with a with 1938 the president ends up not being able to determine who his allies in congress are but as as luke is getting at here in the 60s and especially in the early 70s we see congress actually putting up institutional barriers to segment itself off from the presidency um, and really a sign of pre- really, I think what has to be understood as presidential overreach between the six and a half years of, well, I guess 10 years of Johnson and Nixon, to be perfectly honest. I mean, really, when you, th- when you think about it, it's really those 11 years there between November of 1963 and August of 1974 was just a huge and also hugely dishonest in many respects, expansion of presidential power. And just the country was disgusted and Congress especially was disgusted as well. Do we wanna call it a day here and maybe we can wrap up um, you know, Congress from, from sort of the, from the 1970s through the present in our next episode? Yeah, I think that makes sense because in, I think in the 1970s, Congress begins to look you know, we sort of having established the Congressional Budget Office and the budgeting procedures and things like that, Congress begins to look and, you know, we see the ideological changes in, especially in the Democratic Party and then later in the Republican Party, Congress is going to be become, begin to look more like the modern Congress. So I think maybe one more episode of history and then we can start looking at the institutions of the contemporary Congress. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. That's great. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. And we will speak to you next week. Thank <laughs> you.